This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, a high school teacher from BC is the winner of Alone Season 10. Alan Tenta tells us about the experience of trying to survive with nine other competitors in the Saskatchewan wilderness and what kept him going to win it all, staying out there the longest. Are you okay with manners? What about boarding planes? And don't believe everything you see on TV and Netflix. On the world of weird things, Greg Fish tells us about a new Netflix documentary that presents itself as fact when in fact it might be fiction. It's all on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Every now and then we get a really cool show that hits the uh, hits the TV. Are we allowed to say that anymore? Are we even allowed to say it's on TV? Because you can watch Stack TV like on all your devices. It's available. It's I guess that's the stream. I don't know. Uh, joining me now is to talk about one of these incredibly cool shows that uh, wrapped up last week. Alone season 10 finale was on technically on Thursday, the history channel streaming on stack TV. You can catch those on the replay and everything else. Um, the season features two Canadian participants, um, James Wyatt black from Ontario. And joining me now is Alan Tenta from BC. And Alan is incredibly BC by the way. And when I say this, if you know, you know, um, because he's in the Columbia Valley uh, he's a high school teacher and, um, he's, uh, right in the heart of all of it where it's been smoking hot last week. My goodness. I think that one high for Thursday was 37 in Kamloops. So, uh, pretty good. Uh, pretty hot. Alan, welcome. How's your summer sitting back, watching yourself on TV with your feet up in the sunshine. Not a terrible way to go. No, it's all good. It's been a pretty exciting summer. I've, I've enjoyed, uh, I've enjoyed watching the show on Thursday nights because even as a participant on the show, we have no idea what the episode will be. Like, we're not sure how, like what areas of footage that they've right. chosen from the multiple hours of footage that we provided to them. So it's always a surprise for me as well. Which embarrassing part they decide to cut into it. Absolutely. Tell us the premise of the show. So for those who have never seen it, um, it's 11 90 minute episodes. It's a, uh, it's a very, human show you guys were in northern saskatchewan alone season 10 give us the premise okay so there's a fairly large application pool and they select they select 10 participants from that application pool uh you go through quite a rigorous application process and once you're selected you've got about a month and a half or two months to prepare for the show whether it be learning uh edible plants to the area honing your hunting skills trapping skills what have you and then they drop you off in different locations um and you're allowed 10 items to bring to the show along with your clothing and a backpack and they drop you off either by plane boat or helicopter and you're you do all your own filming you have three different cameras to, to film with two gopros and a, and a larger camera about you know the size of a loaf of bread um so i guess it's not that large of a camera so it's all self-filmed and the last person standing uh wins the prize the last person the person that lasts the most amount of days on their own wins the prize and then you don't know right like you don't know that you know bob from red deer pulled the shoot after a day and a half like you wouldn't know that I, bob doesn't exist by the way i made that up <laughs> unless he does exist <laughs> and then that's yeah. weird 
No, that, that, that's correct. Um, and that, that adds to that adds an element of stress and anxiety to the whole challenge. Like there may be three left, there may be nine left, there may be 10 left. You, you, you yeah. don't know. You just got to keep pushing. So you're by yourself, you're in the middle of nowhere and you're trying to survive your way through this. I, I don't know about your uh, hunting, trapping and foraging skills in Invermere. I'm guessing you would just go up the hill to the grocery store and get an ice cream cone normally. Um, um, but you know, these the skills, was this a skill set that's been a part of your life growing up? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, I've always been really into fishing. I've been fishing for as long as I can remember. And I got into archery at a young, at a young age as well. And that developed into a passion for bow hunting. Um, so fishing and, and bow hunting has been a huge passion. Uh, both been big passions throughout my life. And I'm an outdoor education teacher at the high school. So I'm, I'm continuously learning, learning knots, uh, survival skills, shelter building, carving, um, all sorts of things that that are useful for, for the show. Interestingly enough, that's kind of how I how I ended up applying for the show was in one of my outdoor uh, one of my outdoor education classes. We used to watch old old seasons of Alone on Fridays while we were working on our carving projects because you know they're teaching the basic carving skills and. The kids just loved it. They'd come in on Fridays. We'd turn the lights down low. We'd throw on old seasons of Alone. And then they started seeing that the contestants on the show were doing a lot of the skills that we're learning in that class. And kids started piping up, Mr. Tenta, you should apply for Alone. So this happened for a couple of years. And finally, I threw in an application. And uh, here I am now. That's amazing. Um, yeah, coolest teacher ever. <laughs> right? Um, okay, so fascinating to think that you get there now as a teacher you're handling these kids uh, all the time uh, all kinds of different emotions all kinds of different personalities being alone by yourself in the woods though you get face to face with your personality all the different pieces of you right um you know confidence in how to carve but you know fear of the dark or whatever it is that you go through uh, staring in that mirror alan uh, by yourself in the middle of nowhere um must have been a couple of things that, that popped up that surprised you. Uh, yes, ab- definitely. Um, especially during what I called the dark days of the program. Uh, so after about day 50 or so, uh, that's when things start getting a little bit difficult. You know, the hunger starts catching up to you. Uh, the days are short. It's very cold. It's gray. The fishing slows down or stops completely. And yeah, you're spending more and more time in your shelter with your own thoughts. And, you know, you definitely get to know yourself. And I think one of the, one of the biggest things that I learned was, you know, that we have too much and the importance of family and loved ones. hundred percent. Okay. Um, What's the best um, thing that for you, that you take from there? I mean, those are, those are broad and they're beautiful. But really for yourself, like when, you, when you're looking at yourself and you, whether it's something you want to work on or something that you want to be better at or uh, something that you realized, holy crap, I'm really good at this part of being a human. Um, what was your mm-hmm. takeaway? Because I'm assuming you're faced with everything um, when you're sitting there, like your mind must just go. Yeah. But at the same time, maybe it gets quiet, I suppose. Well, that's a pretty difficult question you just asked me. But I, I think some of, some of the things that, that I took away were just uh, being kind to people. I'm going to, I'm going to try to be a nicer person. You know, I know that's pretty cliche and everybody says that, but, but it's true. I mean, you, when you're out there alone and, and you're, you're thinking about, 
uh, your relationships with friends and family and and even the strained ones too, right? And you're and you just uh, you realize that how important those people are to you, and the importance of, of of being a good human and being kind to people and just being more patient with people, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. That that wasn't the best answer, but that's it's that's a great all answer. That's Alan. all I got right now, <laughs> dude. That's a beautiful answer, and I'm all about the hard questions, Alan. You need to listen to the shift before oh, you uh, before you come on. Um, okay, deep. well, it, oh, we're gonna we're just getting started. Um, the uh, okay, so you talk about relationships and the importance of the people. Tell me one person that um, you came to realize in your life from sitting there on alone, season ten. You're in the middle of nowhere. You're by yourself. Um, what's one person where you came out of that goes, you know what? I need to spend more time with this person. Who is that? Um, well, well, there's no one person in, in particular, but mo- primarily family. Uh, my, my mother, who's who's getting on in years, uh, you know, she's not going to be around forever. And just making sure that I, I take the time to reach out and spend as much time with her as I can. So she was on my mind quite a bit. And just how important my wife is to me and, and my children. And yeah, those 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 are the big ones. Family, mm-hmm. mother, my two brothers, my wife, and my children would, would be, you know, equally important in that mm-hmm. to answer that question. Okay. Well, you you're doing great. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make you decide which child's your favorite. So we can <laughs> set that a question aside. Um Alan Tenta is here. It's alone season 10. And okay, so you get out there. And you've talked about these relationships and being kind to people. And that's what your takeaway is out of this. You get there and then you realize I would not be making if it weren't for this person that had to been in my life that influenced me to get here. Once you got there, who did you realize was the biggest impact on you? Not only being alone, but surviving being alone. Uh, Um, Who who influenced that? I'd say my father. What's your dad's name? Uh, Erwin. He passed away in 2013. You had a lot of time with your dad when you were out there then? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There was if have you watched the the earlier episodes? Have you watched the show at all yet? I have stayed away from it on purpose because we knew this was coming. Um, And I I I sometimes stay away from a show. Um, Ryan goes and watches it and tells me Uh, what I need to know, what I need to know. And then I stay away because I don't want to go into the conversation um, biased at all. Gotcha. Um, sorry, that that might have been my hard question to you for this interview. <laughs> Just kidding. But uh, there, there was it. there was a scene uh, in episode one about this crazy experience I had with an owl, um, and you know that it was kind of a spiritual experience for me. If if you've seen the show, you know exactly what I'm talking about because it was a five minute segment in, in episode one where it was dusk and and an owl uh, came and just started circling me, like for quite some time, landing in landing in trees you know, 10 yards away and then land in the ground in front of me back up to the tree, flew more circles around me, left for a few minutes. It would come back and do it again. And that was repeated about three times and it went on for over 10 minutes and I filmed most of it. And I got some really good footage of that close up owl. And, and, you know, after my dad passed away, we had some, my brothers and my mother, we had some really deep spiritual experiences with owls, like really weird, uh, like really weird. Like when, when my brother was was from was leaving from California um, to to say goodbye to my dad as, uh, when he was on his deathbed, basically, a large owl uh, was uh, was waiting on the gutter of his front door as he walked out, and he had never seen an owl the whole time he'd been there before. And uh, I had I had another 
kind of weird experience with an owl uh, shortly after my dad passed. And what the kind of the kicker for this situation on the show was before I left, my, my mom said, hey, watch out because my mom's really into the spirituality and, and owls kind of, you know, are said to embody the spirits of the dead. And I know I, this is getting kind of kooky. I'm not saying I that, love it. No, I do. I love this. I'm totally buying all this. It's just Don't, I'm, I'm just you, relaying my experience. Keep giving to you. it. I love okay. it. Yeah, no, and, I love uh, it. You keep so, it coming. So my, I am my mom said in. to me before I left, she goes, "Hey, keep your eye out for Dad. See if see if he comes by and says hello." So I'd been there for a short time, and then this experience happened. It, it was pretty wild. Yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, have you ever looked up the symbolism um, in Indigenous culture of owls? Yeah, it's it's, it's associated with death. Yeah, um, and yep. uh, messengers, wisdom, magic, prophecy. Yeah, all um, that stuff. Birds of wisdom. Um, do you ever think he'll go back to, you know, what, maybe without the, well, maybe with a camera so you can document it again um, and just, just to have that alone time, um, maybe you, have that mean, time with you your you mean dad? back to my location? Anywhere. Just like to, would you purposely put yourself in front of the situation now that you've had some of these, you know, new experiences and added them to Yeah, right? probably not without food. Um, but yeah, yeah you could take a sandwich <laughs> in this new version of it though. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd probably bring a couple sandwiches. But no, it's uh, I, I enjoy being alone. I, I have a I have quite a bit of experience uh, being alone, and uh, people who know me know that I'm I'm social. But I also uh, like to recharge my batteries by being alone. You know, some people recharge their batteries in groups. Um, you know, I, I recharge my batteries when when I'm alone, either either hunting or fishing, or you know, I just I enjoy it, and that's how I recharge. How did you? Uh, how much weight did you lose? Uh, I'm allowed to say that now, I think, aren't I? I lost about 80 pounds, 79 oh. to be exact. Yeah. So it was quite a bit, eh? Yeah. Um, I went in amazing. heavy though. I went in heavy. On purpose? Because, yeah. I, I gained about 40 pounds. Wow. See, you were up the ice cream store up by <laughs> up oh, yeah. downtown. Was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of oh, fun that's... gaining weight actually. Yeah, I bet. Um, okay. So you, you've had these experiences, you've gone through all that, you've got all these sort of uh, you know, these beautiful memories of it, uh, coming back. Yeah. Uh, was it overwhelming? Was it too much? I'm assuming that you really enjoyed the time away from your cell phone. Yeah, I, I did. No, it, it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't too much at all. I, um, I actually left feeling, feeling pretty good. I, I didn't have any, uh, even though I lost all that weight, I, I was still eating most every day. Uh, I ate, I ate about a half a large lake trout a day with some berries and some grouse and, you know, a few squirrels here and there. But, you know, I was probably eating maybe 600 calories a day, somewhere like that, which isn't enough to sustain me. I'm, I'm almost 6'3", and my normal weight is about 220. And, um, but no, that, that was enough to, to keep me going. I, I felt actually really good, believe it or not, but my eyes were like white. I had no pain in my knees. I had no pain in my shoulders. and. Really? Yeah, I, I felt incredible. The the only thing was that I had no energy. Like when I was stationary, like laying in bed or sitting there or standing fishing, I, I actually felt wonderful. It wasn't until I started, you know, walking up a hill or moving around is when I really noticed that, you know, I, I didn't have much energy and I tired very quickly. I felt extremely weak, but just kind of being, uh, I felt, I felt great. You go through the experience of alone season 10 it's available for um for everybody to watch you can get it on stack tv it's on the amazon prime channels too you can find it there um 
it's um I admire the fact that you that you did it. I admire the fact that you you pulled it off. I really admire the fact that you came back. I suppose that's always a risk. Um, the History Channel has it. It officially wrapped up last week, but I'm trying to avoid really getting into too much of the results. I don't want to do the spoiler alert. You know um, the state of the world today, Alan. I mean, like we see a lot. And one of the conversations I had here on the shift a couple of weeks ago, I was presented with a word um, from um, Chin and Jetty. He was a part of the, the 90s R&B group, uh, Bases Base, and we were talking a little bit philosophically. And he had said, depleted. The world is very depleted right now. So for people who um, who don't get out, who don't try to do things like this, who don't get out and go fishing or you know get themselves into nature, I mean, it's what you do as a teacher. You've done it as a show. Why should people watch the show and what should they learn from it to maybe get them moving again so we're a little less depleted? Oh, just, I, I think uh, humans, the people these days, which are humans, <laughs> Have, we, we've kind of lost our connection with nature. It's probably debatable, by the way, <laughs> if we're actually or not. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. No, it's okay. I, I was just saying that today, I, you know, in, in, in the hustle and bustle of our lives and always being in a hurry, uh, and I feel, you know, we're kind of living an art of, in an artificial type of existence that has only been like this for several centuries. You know what I mean? I mean, and it just, and I think, Many people, uh, not not all, of course, have lost their connection with nature, with the land. And I think by watching the show, I mean, even though people are are going hungry and struggling, and but I think it might remind you of because uh, there are a lot of beautiful connections that contestants make on the show. Perhaps by watching the show, you can are you can be reminded of of how important the connection with nature and the land really is. Maybe we take care of it a little better. Yeah, exactly. Love that. Are you a better person for going? I think so. You have to ask my wife. To be determined. <laughs> Let's get Alan's wife on the shift. That's what I want to know. I want to know that. That's a conversation I want to hear. I think I Also, am. your so, kids, I want to hear how you're a better dad after this. Well, they're, neither of them are home, but they'll both be here tonight. Uh, one's driving back from Calgary and uh, one's out with her friends, but... Uh, um, sorry, what was the question? I got distracted I there. I would ask you if you're a better person. Um, oh, right. If you're your uh, wife. And... I, I think I'm more patient and more thoughtful. Whether or not that makes me a better person, I don't know. But I'm definitely more patient, more thoughtful. And hmm, I think I try to listen more. Hmm. I try to listen to people more. Like not not so anxious to speak. Um, more more listening for me, I think. And, and instead of, you know, waiting for my, for a pause when someone's speaking to, to say my piece, just listen. That's a, the appetite to be heard, man, the appetite to be understood. I mean, I think that you've just nailed uh, one of the things that most of us go through when we put our head down on the pillow at night and that brain hamster wheel runs wild. The notion that you can quiet that and just listen to what people are saying. I mean, that's something everybody strives for, Alan. I mean, it sounds to me like you found a little piece of that, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, well, congratulations on your participation in the show. Um, the outcome of the show to be determined for everybody who's going to watch it on Stack TV. And, um, you know, it's on the Rogers Ignite, um, Amazon Prime channels. 
Uh, I'm sure there's going to be reruns of the show too. Or you could just go back to high school and have a really cool teacher that shows it to you on Fridays. That <laughs> would be all, all the things as well uh, to get in on it. Um, Northern Saskatchewan alone with 10 items and staying out there as long as you can to try to win a cash prize with the History Channel and so much more. Well, um, I'm being vague on purpose here because I want people to watch the show. I don't want to give the outcome of anything of how it goes, right? So, also I'm coming to your house and you're going to make fish because I want to know. <laughs> That's a deal. Plus someone ice cream. Asked, someone asked me that question online the other night. Uh, so Wyatt and I was like, how long was it before you could enjoy fish again along that lines? But uh, no, it wasn't too bad. Like, I mean, at first, uh, sorry, I'm turning your comment into a question. Is that okay? Yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. <laughs> Give her. At first I struggled with, with the fish. Cause uh, I, I mean, I, I caught a fish the first night and, and I wasn't at all hungry, uh, but, it, but I was still warm and I knew I had to consume this, this, this pike. And, uh, so I, I was kind of forcing it down. And then, so I had pretty good fishing luck the first three days and I caught a lake trout. They showed this, they, they didn't show me catch the other two pike, but they showed me catch a lake trout and it was full of roe or fish eggs. And, you know, bears know this, that the roe and the skin are the most valuable parts of the fish, even more so than, than the flesh itself. It's full of fats and oils and all sorts of good stuff that your body needs. So I knew I had to eat the roe. And again, I'd already eaten two fish. I wasn't hungry. And, you know, I was, I was pretty heavy at the time for me. And I forced myself to eat this roe. Uh, I boiled it. I boiled all this roe as to, so I could drink the broth after, so I wouldn't lose the oil and, and the fatty bits of it. And, uh, and the, they showed me dry heaving as I was like gulping down each bite, but I got her down, but no, oh, wow. it was terrible. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of, uh, of, roe or fish eggs and sushi or whatever but I, I can definitely handle handle the meat but as i got hungrier and as the show went on i actually enjoyed the fish more and more and more especially after i started smoking it and then uh boiling it after it was smoked it, it was actually delicious so I, I have no actually bad memories of eating fish whatsoever besides that first the first few days gonna stay off squirrels for a little while though yeah, uh, they weren't too bad. They just tasted kind of like a bland meat. They weren't too strong or gamey, but w probably the strongest thing out there flavor-wise was the squirrel liver. I, I boiled the liver and the heart, and uh, the liver was just so powerful. Like that, uh, like uh, you know, imagine the taste of liver, like beef liver, and then multiply that by like a hundred, and it just had that strong liver taste. I don't know. I don't know if it was in the squirrel or the way it cooked it, or it was just. But it was nasty. <laughs> wow. I did not have squirrel liver on my bingo card for a conversation today. So this is cool. <laughs> um, Alan, um, great stuff. I, really cool that you inspire kids to get connected to nature. And then it turns around that, that they get you inspired to do it too. And then you go out and you do this. It's fascinating. I invite everybody to watch the show. You can watch previous episodes as well. But if you want to see Alan Tenta, you can on season 10 of... Alone, it's uh, Stack TV, History Channel, and all of the Prime channels. You can see it there. Thanks for being here, brother. Hey, thank you. Enjoyed it. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight? 
Your calls, your texts, welcome here. Your thoughts on these stories that might make you ponder. Earlier, I was ranting about how it seems like some families take their whole family to Costco. I find that weird. Uh, ironically, everybody's comment was the same that came in about it. It said, um, although there was one comment, um, Jasper was like, I think we got spoiled. But manners are missing. Shane, in regards to your comments about Costco, I have two words about why take uh, some families take their whole families to the store. Free samples. Another text. Hey, Shane, it's Baker. The reason people bring their whole families to Costco is economics. You can feed your whole family on free samples. Another text. It's because they do free samples. I didn't see anybody gathered around the free sample place, but it could be the thing that leads us to our next Are You Okay? Are you okay with... Manners seem to be wildly missing in the stores. Just saying. Yeah, they 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 they, they surely are. I like the uh, line from the Kingsman, which I know it's not a quote from the Kingsman. I just know it from that movie. Manners maketh man. It gets very mm. good. I think the manners go a long, long way. The moment you kind of let those manners down, you lose a little bit of humanity. Honestly. It makes a huge so. difference in it. It really, really ticks me off if I run into somebody who's un, un, either rude on purpose or they don't realize they're being rude or rude for no reason. It's just, you know, it doesn't uh, doesn't sit well with it. And it, it, it's weird. It's why I like being, at least in Calgary, I know for sure. Like if you smile at someone on the street, they smile back at you here. Yeah, and in many that's... places across the country, right? I like I'd say that. mostly in Canada. I mean, yes, it is different cool. in a parking lot in Ontario. You don't don't walk across a parking lot without looking both ways. You will get run down. But that same person who almost ran you over will hold the door open for you when you walk in and yes. smile at you and say, hi, how are you? Right? So, I mean, it's a little different everywhere. Um, but, yeah, manners are incredibly important. Some might say that that's the difference when we went from being Neanderthals to humans is when we started having structure, society, and manners. Mm-hmm. So, now, Canadians are some of the friendliest people on the planet but not everyone lives into that friendly canadian stereotype two cities in southern ontario share a partial border have taken a number one spot for the rudest and politest cities in canada preply which surveyed more than 1500 canadians across 44 cities found which cities across the country people thought were the rudest and whether they whether the stereotype of apologizing is too much is true rudest is that even a word big word yep Okay. <laughs> yep. It found that Vaughn, Ontario was the rudest city in Canada. Hmm. Uh, ironically, the city just east of it, Markham, was the politest. Both cities are in York. The survey done by Preply of the rudest cities in Canada was led by the greater Toronto area. No, it wasn't the city of Toronto, which finished 17th, or even Brampton, which finished 3rd, but it was Vaughan leading the list. This, despite being home to Canada's wonderland. The authors say people weren't as likely to say thank you, let you merge when driving, or show overall politeness. Those who know the city disagree. Very well to do, and... uh... I've had pleasant experiences with them, so and I found them to be polite for the most part. Vaughn Mayor Stephen Del Duca, who has lived in the city for more than 40 years, says being described as rude is far from accurate. While they're open to feedback, he says Vaughn is dynamic, exciting, and one of Canada's fastest-growing cities. With Markham finishing as the nicest, it's left many confused. I don't really make a distinction between the two. Having them, again, so close to each other and literally, like, 
right across from each other would be very confusing. And they share a common neighborhood in Thornhill, with Young Street acting as the border, and residents of Thornhill say there is no real difference. I'm in Thornhill, right? So I don't see any difference on, the, on either side. I shop on this side, I live on this side. Hmm. Huh. You notice how the mayor of Vaughn, he said, you know, Vaughn is dynamic and it's one of the fastest growing, but he didn't say it's one of the nicest cities. Like he didn't even defend that point. He just was mm. like, hey, 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 we're a nice city. We're growing, but he didn't say we're nice. Hmm. I think that uh, that's a very good point. Um, For those that rank the politest Cities, by the way, alongside Markham, Saginaw, Quebec, came in second with Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, and third. The survey found that some of the most common rude behaviors were closed-off body language. How rude. Being absorbed by your phone in public. Eh, it's kind of rude. Not waving thank you when a car lets you merge. Like, do you really think if if you're in the zipper, if you're in the zipper lane and you're trying to merge anything like that. Do you really think that space just magically opened up because you're such an amazing magical driver? (laughs) Yeah. No, no. I hate to break it to you. Someone actually made that space for you. Right. So throw a little wave. Um, One thing that I really, really, really love was the, the peace sign recently. When I was in Niagara last week, I was in, spent some time in Niagara on the Lake and St. Catharines and Niagara Falls. Actually, I was in Chippewa when I did the first one. I was my first day there. I was, I, this guy was walking his dog and he made eye contact. It was a small little side street. So I had my hand on the steering wheel and I just threw up a peace sign. He enthusiastically threw one back. Oh, good. Okay, good. I thought you were going to say you were going to get the finger or something. Okay, I'm happy nope. that was the that was the right. That was good. It was great. No, it was beautiful, and um, it was it was just a wonderful thing, and it. I was like, this is cool. I got to try this. So every time I saw somebody that made eye contact or like construction person working, there was. It was, they do these tree trimming in St. Catharines all the time because the trees are so big and the power lines or whatever. And so they had this intersection kind of closed. They were directing traffic. And uh, actually, you know what? It was right by where BK used to work, um, that gas station. Oh, I don't know if I texted him that picture of the gas station. I took a picture of his old work for him. And, um, and I threw the, 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 the stop go, slow stop flag person. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a hard square peace sign and dude's face lit up, man. He was just, Oh man, peace brother. See, I love that. So on the list could be St. Catharines. I'd put it there. Um, all right. So apologizing was also on there, right? Yeah. Oh, there's, um, also on the list, uh, cars that let you merge, not saying thank you to the driver when exiting public transit. And respecting personal space. The survey also looked up who those who apologized most in cities across the country had found residents of Burlington, Ontario said sorry the most. Whoops. At 18 apologies a day. Oh, sorry. I said sorry. Sorry. As someone who lived in Burlington, I can confirm that's actually pretty accurate. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I, did, I thought of that too when I drove by there. I was like, oh, I wonder where I used to live. Are you okay with boarding planes? Oh, boarding planes. <laughs> yeah, boarding, matters. you know, boarding. Um, I don't get it. it. Like, I get it, but the zones don't make sense. Like, I'm in zone five, but I'm sitting near the front of the airplane. Mm-hmm. But then my friend who's in zone one is also sitting near the front of the airplane, not at the back. Like, it's just every time it doesn't make any sense. And Don't as soon as. They bo- yes, I have more complaints. Okay, complain but I can, first. I'll put them. That, okay, I was just going to say, you know, the boarding call is now open. You know, you hear the sound effect, and then everybody jumps up. And oh, that's in line. the worst. And then even though they're going to be standing for like another 20 minutes, I don't yeah. know, it's just a chaos. I have to give credit to Porter because I flew Porter on the way out. And Porter okay. just, there, there's no real premium in Porter, right? They basically right. do. If you're in rows 1 to 15 or something like that, you can board now. And if you're in rows 15 nice. to 25, you can board now. And anything above rows 25, you can board now. But people still go get up in line early, like they're going to sneak in or something. I love it when they get to the front, though, and they go to take the boarding pass. And they're like, sorry, sir, we're now boarding zone two. You're going to have to go. And then they yeah, have to do that see? awkward step aside, like I tried to sneak in, and now I yep. feel shame. Um, the reason why, Ryan, is uh, zone one, dep- every airline does it differently, but typically zone one would be the front of the plane, premium first class, business class, whatever. Some of the airlines like WestJet, they do premium plus the first bunch of rows. Zone two is often the back of the plane. Right? And because they will start to load the back of the plane because it's easier to get people back there. Right? They get people get into the back of the plane first so they don't get stuck up at the front trying to get their stuff in. But some airplanes will do zone two in the front because some airplanes... It's a, it's a, it's like a tricycle, right? There's two wheels and then a front wheel. And if you load the back of the plane first, oh, the plane will tip. Tilt. Oh, okay. So okay. Uh, right. here's a little secret. When they're unloading bags from the plane, they actually unload the bags from the back of the plane first to keep the extra weight on the front of the plane. So, because when everyone stands up, those people at the back of the plane don't get off first. All the weight leaves the front of the plane first because that's who gets off first. So all the way into the back of the plane. So they have to get the bags off the back right away in order to keep the weight on the front so the plane doesn't tip. That's actually a legitimate thing. There's a thing called a pogo stick on some small planes. This will terrify you. There's a thing called a pogo stick that you don't realize gets inserted as soon as the brakes are locked and before they open the door, before they let you stand up. And that's this little stick. is like a broomstick. It goes underneath the um, back of the plane, and it goes straight mm-hmm. down to the ground. And it's only there to stop it from tipping. <laughs> oh, and you don't, great. you don't even know it's there. See? So now, you know, there's you go. That's why these uh, zones are all goofed up when you try to get on your plane. But that's why. This is the shift podcast. Weird. It got very weird. I don't understand. Welcome to the world of weird things with Greg Fish. Greg Fish joins us from California, and uh, I'm assuming you're wet at the moment. Eh, eh, a little. According to, according to the news, 
it's uh, it should be an absolute apocalypse. California is lucky not to be an island after this is all over. But the reality is, Seamus's fluff got got uh, moved around a little bit by the wind, and we had a nice light drizzle. Oh, so right. we also had a little earthquake. So that was well. That was it's fun. been a there's been a lot of things going on, and there have been some areas that got hit with a lot of water too. I mean, I think that in and around Palm Springs, they had to rescue some people in some runaway water and stuff like that. Yeah, so. that that's that's true. Some of the low lying areas in the desert, they they can't just handle even a small amount of water coming in the that fast there's just nowhere for it to go like yeah, the soil just just it expels just it back yeah yeah fascinating anyway uh, that's not why we're here to talk about the weather but uh it is nice to talk to you about the weather greg fish uh if you want to know more about greg fish he has a newsletter world weird things and we will share that link uh, it's called a Substack, which is really cool it's basically a, a bloggy blog blog and then a newsletter that you can actually get in your mailbox give you a heads up on some of the things that we're going to talk about here on the shift as well and we're digging into this gray area fish between documentaries and documentaries because there seems to be two very different kinds yeah so why don't we why don't we start with the current one that netflix is um well if it was any higher profile they would definitely get a lot of um they would get a lot of pushback for it uh but uh right now it's kind of been sliding under the radar so this particular documentary is called unknown came of uh cave of bones and uh it is essentially a purportedly a story about the very first burials of human-like creatures so Mm. One very important thing to understand about human evolution is that everyone looks at the um, at the march of progress. That's that's the that's the painting that supposedly shows humanity evolving from chimpanzees or something that looks like a chimpanzee to modern humans. And the reality is, it's anything but that. We are one of at least twenty one species that we know of that are human in some way, shape, or form. So there were at least another 20 human-like species, uh, species that were close enough to where we could actually interbreed with them. In fact, we interbred with two of them for a fact, the Neanderthals and the Denisovians. And we think that there may be other possibilities out there. We don't think we have the complete tree. We also, when we look back in the past, all the way to almost 4 million years ago, we don't find one or two or three, but at least four common ancestors that these all of these hominid species came from. So again, the evolution of humanity is actually a pretty messy process. It's got a lot of gaps. It's got a lot of holes. There's still a lot of things that we're learning, but we know that our story is actually very, very complex. So what that does, it leaves a lot of room for people to speculate. And so in this particular case, Netflix followed a group of researchers who follow who found this cave in South Africa and inside that cave they found a new species of hominid called Homo naledi or star people because it comes from naledi is uh, the local word for star so the and the cave system itself is called the rising star cave system so that's how the species gets its name so they found the bones of 15 individuals and in that particular documentary, they claim that the way that they found those bones indicates burial rites. 
it indicates primitive writing, it indicates primitive cooking. So you have these, you have the species that was living between 250,000 and 350,000 years ago that is exhibiting all the telltale signs of what we would define as humanity. And they published a lot of these, a lot of their evidence and a lot of their conclusions in these very shocking preprints for academic journals. And right after the documentary was available on Netflix, Interestingly enough, that's when the peer reviews actually started to pour in, and that's when scientists said, whoa, 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 whoa. You're essentially claiming that this hominid species was burying their fellow members of the tribe, had a fairly sophisticated society, had some basic writing, and essentially moving back the date of the first human burials by 160,000 years, but your evidence doesn't back literally any of this. So what you're telling people in this documentary is little more than kind of like a fanciful tale that you've imagined from some bones. And that's where the controversy sort of begins because at this point, the documentary is out. The news is about the preprints is out and media outlets around the world are reporting this as fact. Oh yeah, we found the oldest human burial and it turns out it's 160,000 years older than we thought. Reality, no, we actually have no idea and we don't actually have any real evidence for this. So just to recap the timeline, that timeline is basically somebody found some stuff, one site, drew a bunch of conclusions, did a deal with Netflix, created a movie, and then the movie was released and then peer reviews for other people that dig up old bones started to come in after the fact. But at that point, the floodgates of inaccuracy have already been opened. Is that a safe summary? That is, that is exactly what happened. Okay. And so, I can give you a couple of quick examples. Well, I, I, I want to, yeah, okay, so I want to ask a question before we get to your quick example. Save mm -hmm. that, pin that for me. Um, in this single example, they found people, uh, bodies that they believe were buried from whatever technology that said it was from that era. There's been some stuff about skulls lately, and I don't even know if that's the same story about weird skulls. And maybe there was different kinds of people. Uh, I don't even know if they're related. And they, but the interesting part of that is they find a skull and they say, oh, we might have actually had a whole different era of humans that went on or different kinds of humans or whatever they were. Because look at this skull. It proves this. It also is possible that it could have been just a misformed human. It's like when they say people were so tall back then because we found a tall person. That's like saying climate change isn't real because it's snowing here. Um, it is possible that you just found an abnormally tall person or abnormally short person that it might, you can't really draw a conclusion from only finding one thing. Now, I think that leads to your points. Yeah, that, that does lead to my point. And I actually, so... Actually, I'm going to start at the skull and work my way and work my way back because that actually is is exactly where I wanted to go next. Okay. So, <clears throat> when you find these specimens, a lot of times these specimens are not complete because, first of all, time is not really kind to remains. So there's there's moisture, there's precipitation, there's predation, there are all sorts of things that happen, and nature does not is not obliged to save remains of what of what was previously there so we can very accurately reconstruct our history like that's not nature's job whatever happens happens so 
when you collect a single specimen, you can never generalize. You always have to find as many pieces as possible. Now, you can try and fill in some blanks and say, hey, here's an idea, but that's all it is. It's an idea. You need a lot more evidence for it. So, for example, the skull that was found in China, yeah, it looks like an abnormal skull, but then again, a lot of that skull has been filled in by conjecture. Is it possible it's a new species? Yes. Is it possible... It is a member of an existing species that just has just looks different. Yes. Is it possible they just reconstructed the skull wrong? Absolutely. Until you find more of these skulls and more of these pieces and more of this evidence, you can't really generalize. And it's kind of the same thing with Holmenaledi. We didn't just find a single individual. There are at least 15. So you see that, okay, yes, there are some different pieces out there. We see a slightly different morphology. Yes, it relates. But then when you look at how they are positioned, you have this team claiming, oh, they were in burials. They were in these little hollow graves in fetal positions. But then only one body actually fits that particular description. So that whole could be natural. Other bodies are supposedly buried in those fetal positions, but a lot of them are missing. And the skeletons are not articulated. When you have remains actually buried, the skeleton is fairly well articulated. You can kind of go through and say, yeah, this, these are where all the pieces are supposed to be. That's not the case with Homo naledi bones. They're kind of scattered in, in different places. And then some of the stone tools, some of the markings, they haven't been dated back to that era. So it's entirely possible that maybe we, modern humans, or maybe other hominids that we don't know that lived a lot later, were the ones who made those hash marks on the walls. They're the ones who had the cooking fires. They may have not known anything that, about Homonaledi existing, and it's just because it's all in the safe cave, we're going to put it together because that's a really cool narrative, and that's because the researchers, this is what the researchers really want, and they are jumping the gun, and they are mm -hmm. 100% sure that, they, that they've that they got it. They have they have the story, and you have people who understand, you have the, 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 the scientific community that understands that you need a lot more evidence for things like that. You need to be far more thorough for things like that. You can't just use a simple example. And they're saying, whoa, hold on, wait. That's not how any of this works. Okay, so that's, you know, seeking evidence is a lot different than seeking answers. This is a condition that we're seeing with people all over today, Fish. I mean, people go out seeking evidence, right? Seeking affirmation of a belief versus actually going out and with a hypothesis and trying to find evidence. The, I mean, this is rampant through our society. We saw it through COVID. We see it through all kinds of conspiracy theories where people are like, I believe the sky is falling. And then they find a website about the sky is falling and they're like, see, told you. Right. So, I mean, this, this is not only evident here, but it's evident in all aspects of humanity. But I would say it's really concerning when you claim that science is science when it's actually missing science and of, you know, just, just to be clear, you know, what is science by definition, a systematic study of the structure, behavior and physical and natural word through observation, experimentation and testing theories against evidence obtained. So basically from what you're saying is, is that they found stuff, but they didn't have a systematic study to seek out or challenge any of the evidence. I, I think that, yes, you, that's correct. They, they, they saw a bunch of interesting stuff and they put together the story that they really wanted to be true. And now in 
a regular normal environment, they would have published their preprints. They would have gotten savaged just like they did by their experts who said, no, you don't actually have evidence for anything that you're claiming. You have to go back and you have to re-examine things. And these are the things you need to look for in order for us to accept your theories. But they didn't have companies out there that are looking to fill content that are very interested not in necessarily what's true, not in necessarily what's accurate, but what's going to get a reaction? What's going to get people to watch? What's going to get people to click? You don't have companies like that going around stalking people and saying, hey, I hear you got a really cool story. Let us go ahead and and make a documentary about it. Let us make a show about it. Let us do an interview with you because we got, we got content to sell. We got airtime to fill. We got to justify our subscription prices. We got to um, have content for at time. We have to, uh, we, we, we need stuff that people will be interested. And whether it's true or not doesn't really matter because that's not our responsibility. So that's kind of the new thing that's coming in. People have always done this. People have always had confirmation bias. People had always told themselves stories that they want to hear. People have always done um, done stuff like that. You know, people always think in narratives, and whatever narrative is the most interesting one, that's what people latch onto. It's just that today, there's no real arbiter that comes in and says, or rather, there's a lot of institutions who've lost their power to come in and say, "Wait, no, hold on." Before you say that this is fact, here are the things that you need to know. Here are some standards that you need to meet. Right. Now, there was a great post that was at shiftheads.ca that Mary Lee posted just uh, yesterday, which I think the timing is impeccable in this conversation, Fish. And the quote says this, just because something is on Facebook doesn't necessarily mean it's true. William Shakespeare. And I think that's a really great example of one of some of the things that we're talking about. Whoa, here. whoa, 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 whoa! I'm a hundred percent sure that that he did not say this. I'm a hundred percent sure that was Abraham Lincoln. Right, exactly. See, that's exactly what we're talking about. That's going on here now. Is this a Netflix problem? Because Netflix put it out and paid for it. I mean, th- this is the difference between documentaries and content creation. At the same time, though, the you know we've talked a little bit about the um, the painkiller show that's on there. It's about Purdue and OxyContin. One of the cool things that they did do with integrity, I think, is that the very beginning of every episode, they had a couple of people or a person sitting there, real person, that said some of the stories and characters and, and dialogue have are fictitious for dramatic effect or whatever, but this part is not. And this is my son. He was 28 when he died of an OxyContin overdose. And so they have these moments at the very beginning of every episode where they say, look, this show is not real. The topics are real. The circumstances are real. It's based on fact, but the parts of it are fiction. Here's the real impact of OxyContin. And it's very touching at the beginning of all six or seven episodes that's there. So they are doing a pretty good job. Um, this is a, a, a business that was that $6 billion or $4.5 billion or whatever the number was that they had to pay out. And there's all kind of like they, they went bankrupt and they, you know, they've the family and all kinds of stuff that happens. So th- there's a lot there. They're doing a good job with stuff like that at just being very clear that the, the elements of this are not real, but this is a very real topic. But th- so whose problem is this? 
So it is Netflix problem and it's also not. So Netflix doesn't necessarily produce all of the stuff that you see on Netflix. In fact, it produces a very small amount. It's more of a distributor. So it buys the content, it distributes the content from the studios that make it. And it's really based on the studio. So some studios do a great job and some studios do a terrible job. So for example, I mean, you have... Uh, we, we talked about the ancient apocalypse and, and Graham Hancock and how he's going around telling everybody that Atlantis was real and all of human civilization were just idiots except for these, these this one small population. That's also on Netflix. So Netflix doesn't particularly care. Netflix just buys the stuff that they think you will watch. So that's their culpability of it. The fact that they don't necessarily care to do that, they're essentially saying, you know what, we'll outsource it to the viewer. The viewers will figure it out if they really if they really care. They'll do their own research, and then some of the content that they do buy, the producers say, "Well, we have to be really responsible about this, and we have to make sure that people know what's truth, what's fiction, what's dramatic exaggeration, what's reenactment." So that's that's really why you see that wide difference. So if we're gonna pick on Netflix about something, it's the fact that they don't care about anything other than hitting whatever metrics they are prioritizing to call a show successful or not, or call a documentary successful or not. Uh, okay, it makes me think of Fox News. Yes, I mean Fox right. News is the way that it is because it makes the money with the seven hundred and older demographic. I mean, sorry, the sixty-five yeah. and older demographic well, that wants to be afraid of everything and everyone. Right. So they get a big stream of paranoia and fear, and then there was elements of truth to the news that Fox would share for sure. But then, if there were characters on there that openly said in emails that were released recently that that was not the case. And I think that CNN was guilty of it at the same time, too, through the last election cycle. A couple of those characters are gone now. And I think that they've both channels have greatly adjusted the balance that they're presenting. Um, it worked to create profits at the time. And I think that you're seeing more Republicans on CNN and more Democrats on Fox, right? I think that you're seeing it more uh, narrative, at least in the debates. But I, I don't the, know if I would agree with seeing more Democrats on Fox because they they but but that's but that's a completely different topic. But at overall, I, I I would say I would say you're right. There's definitely a recalibration in the news because a lot of Americans don't trust the news that we have because we know that they're not necessarily giving us the truth. They're giving us what we think we want to hear based on the channel that we are watching. Mm -hmm. So Fox has its agenda, CNN has its agenda, MSNBC has its agenda, and these are the things that are going to fit. These are the things that the viewers will resonate with or they think their, their core demographic is going to resonate with, and that's what they put out. And what's accurate and what's not is a very secondary characteristic. So they're going to invite as many as many people from the opposing party as they think the audience will be comfortable with. They invite as much truth or fact-checking as the audience thinks it will be comfortable with. And in fact, Fox News actually had a fairly thriving during their daytime. It was real hard news. Objectively, everything was very truthful and direct and exactly by the numbers. But they found that, hey, the editorial side gets higher ratings and makes more money. So let's muddle the two. Let's let's introduce a little bit of opinion into the news. And then other networks saw, saw this and said, hey, we should do that as well because that also makes money. So there's a lot of, what I'm trying to say is there's a lot of that um, 
what's clickable, what can we share, what can go viral and not necessarily what's true. And that's across all of social media. That's across all of news. That's across basically everything. And I think that that people are getting really sick and tired of that. So you do have a lot of chatter on, on social media when something comes out, people always have their own version of how everybody else must be lying because that's not what they think. And they have plenty of ammo to say that, hey, the news lies to us, the media lies to us, the documentaries lie to us, everybody's lying to us. Yeah, kind of. Well, I think the, to break it down into two words is the word guy. Um, we are not allowed to have our own truth. Something I've heard more and more recently. I'm allowed my truth. No, you're not. The truth is the truth, right? The truth is factually accurate. And facts are widely widely accepted to be accurate. So facts may change over time. The truth may change over time. But the truth is the truth. You are not allowed to have your truth. You are allowed to have your perspective. And in fact, your perspective is quite powerful. That's the difference between what's happening between documentaries and documentaries. You have these truthful scenarios that are put together. And then you have these perspective scenarios that are put together. And perspective and the truth are distinctly different. And um, one truth can generate multiple perspectives. It's quite often the question is wrong. And I'll leave this story that I've shared before. Uh, a little boy, call him Johnny, walks into class. He teacher says, hi, Johnny, what color is the sky today? He says, gray. Uh, no, teacher says, what color is the sky? He says, gray. And the teacher says, no, the sky is blue. He says, what color is the sky? No, the sky is gray. No, the teacher said, no, that's very negative. The sky is blue. And Johnny walks over to the window and he opens the blinds to the classroom and it's cloudy. So where was the problem? The problem is really in the question because the sky is not a color. So that's actually the, the truthful answer. The sky is perceived to be blue most of the day. And yet cloudy doesn't mean that's the color of the sky. You see, the question was wrong. Each of them had their own perspective. And the truth itself is not even represented in that particular example. We're seeing that inside this and we're taking these documentaries to be true, Fish. Um, it, I find it really scary. I... I think I do too. And I think that the part that I find scary is, like I said, we've we've kind of told everybody that, you know what, with social media, you're allowed to have your own truth. You're allowed to have your reality. That's cool. That's fine. But you're not. There's only one reality. And eventually, if you deny it, it's still going to come down on your head one way or another. Yeah. And I would even go as far as to say, uh, to save this for another conversation, as I like to do, um, quite often what we perceive to be general reality is not even what reality is. We are just inside a bubble that's inside a bubble that's inside a bubble. So um, remarkable. Greg Fish, well done. Thanks for being here, bud. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.